name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been too long. It's wonderful to be back. For those who are not yet acquainted with uh, my family and I, uh, we've been part of this glorious family for many years, so it's good to be back. And also to wish all of you a happy Advent. Uh, Advent is a wonderful time of year as we prepare to celebrate the, the birth of Jesus Christ as a vulnerable little baby, and also look forward to his return in power and glory as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It really is a very special time for Angela, Rachel, and me to be here with you, now able to return to Truro, a community of faith that has been such an important part of our lives for many years. I'm grateful to Mary and to Jamie and the vestry and all those who made this possible. We were first introduced to Truro Church in the spring of 1976. I was a student at Virginia Seminary and looking for a field work placement. Now we'd heard of Truro uh, because our sending parish, St. Paul's Church in Darien, Connecticut, that Mary referenced, uh, was part of that same move of the Holy Spirit that had impacted at Truro Church as well. So I came full of excitement to meet Steve Knoll, the interim rector of the time. And although we seemed to get along, he rejected me, he turned me down. It seemed as Steve thought I was too rowdy for true. <laughs> I didn't even bring a tambourine, but... I eventually did find field work placement uh, down the road at Haymarket, St. Paul's in Haymarket, and that proved to be an absolute gift from God because we got to know that community and became very much a part of them. Steve and I have remained good friends despite our first encounter, and I know he was here a few weeks back and uh, we often laugh about our first interaction. Florence is greeting me. I said, Florence, it was good to see you. Florence is our great-granddaughter, and she believes the world revolves around her. <laughs> so. Well, 15 years after that first encounter, I was back uh, in May 1991, and I came back to Truro Church as rector after John Howe's tenure, and we served here until July 2007. It was an exciting time, and we all grew a great deal through those years. I can still recall my very first Sunday morning service. They'd be called me to a rector without me ever actually being here on Sunday morning, so I didn't know what I was getting into. And the procession was forming. Now, I came from a good church in New York, but it was not anything like Truro Church Sunday morning. The procession was forming, first of all, the acolytes, all dressed immaculate in their whites and being operating in military procession and precision. And then followed by the choir that, was, that filled this whole chancel, all well-robed. Uh, and then a dozen or so white-robed lay Eucharistic ministers. Now, of course, being the Washington area, everything has an acronym. They were the LEMS. And then after them a group of clergy, and then finally me. And I was utterly overwhelmed. I looked up there and I thought, I have the clue what I'm doing. 
I'm the new rector, but I don't know where to go, even where to sit. I hadn't spotted this little seat at that point. And so Joe Kitts was in the procession with me, and Joe had been served here for a number of years. And so I said to Joe, I said, Joe, I haven't a clue what to do next. Push me to where I need to go. And he did. And he pushed me and prodded me, and I made it through that first Sunday. My sermon that day was entitled, The Greatest is Love, based on John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. And we were well loved through our time here. We also celebrated a number of major family milestones. And if you'll allow me to wander down memory lane, I'll tell you some of those key moments in our lives. First of all, our daughter Catherine married Jay Slocum in our second year at Truro. Four years later, our son John was also married here to Celeste, daughter of Carol Cordova, who claims they first met on the Truro front steps. And Celeste is here, so she'll confirm that. Uh, so be careful of those front steps. Things happen. <laughs> Jay was confirmed later, and then he and later John were to discern God's call to ordain ministry right here in this church. And both were sent off by you to the Trinity School for Ministry for their theological training. And Jay now serves in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, where I'm presently uh, serving as interim bishop. And John serves in the Diocese of the Carolinas and makes his home in Raleigh, North Carolina. While we're here, 10 grandchildren were born, and we celebrated six baptisms, including at least two by immersion. The, the numbers are a little vague, uh, because we actually had two in the tank, but there's stories others were dunked in the, the font, so we're not quite sure about the immersion quantity. <laughs> in 1993, we had a, a wonderful moment in our family life. Angela's mother, Hilda, came to live with us. She was getting on in years and finding living alone a challenge. And so she came to live with us at One Truro Lane. And she had two wonderful years living with us. And then we had the joyful privilege of holding her funeral in the Truro Chapel. And that funeral will ever be forever in my mind as I think about our children who gathered with her as she breathed her last and then carrying her casket up the lane, up Truro Lane, into the chapel where we, as a family, joined with our other friends of this church, were able to celebrate the life of a truly wonderful woman. Afterwards, of course, we had to have afternoon tea, English style, in the Gunnell House. It was just as Hilda would have wished. We also held another funeral, and that was for Carol Cordova, the mother of Celeste, our son John's wife. And we saw the Holy Spirit at work in a wonderful way in her son Chucky, Chucky had been brain damaged at birth, and as a result had severe learning disabilities. He was never able to speak. As he grew older and stronger, life became more challenging for the family. And Carol told me one time the only time she ever really relaxed was when Chucky was in the Trinity, in the Truro Sunday school class for adults with special needs. She told me it was a, a lifesaver for her at that time. After her death, we were all concerned how would Chucky be able to receive this news? because Carol had basically been part of his life every day. We didn't know how to communicate it. So we prayed and we thought, well, he needs to be able to understand what's happening somehow in a place that's gentler and, and more contained. So we decided to have a viewing in the chapel. We had Carol's body in the casket there, and we gathered. And then I think it was Kesty, was that right, Celeste? I think it was. She brought Chucky in. 
I can still picture him standing at the door, kind of just not quite sure what was going on. Then he walked up to the front. And he stood there and just stroked the hair. And it stood at attention. That was his only way to communicate his love and his respect for his mom. And then he walked out and we all wept. And we're all grateful. So you see this place and these people mean a great deal to me. Another person for whom True was a wonderful and glorious, positive experience is our daughter Rachel, up here with me. She was only eight years old when we arrived and 25 when we left, and so she really grew up here. She knew that she was loved unconditionally by the people of this community of faith. And because of that, she blossomed. She was confirmed in June 2000 by Bishop David Jones, and so many different people invested in her and helped her grow in her faith and in her abilities. George Mims, be careful with the name, it's not the same as mine, but he was our music director for a season, and he taught Rachel to sing. And she loved to sing, still does. Sarah Peace was her acolyte teacher, and she really taught Rachel how to be an outstanding acolyte. About Rachel today was saying why she normally carried the torch and so she was wondering why the torch was there and she was here because she always keeps her eye on things. And Rachel has served as my acolyte all over the world. As you know, I've traveled a bit in things Anglican and I have a wonderful memories of Rachel leading processions with sometimes a dozen or more archbishops walking behind her at her pace. <laughs> uh, and I thought, how delightful that Rachel is leading basically the leadership of the Anglican Communion into worship. Nancy Cope and Janice Murdoch, names some of you may recall, taught Rachel how to dance. And Rachel now continues to dance before the Lord as her way of expressing her love for God and her praise all around the world. I could keep going on, but you get the point. One of Truro's greatest gifts to Angela and to me has been your love for Rachel. And I thank you. Truro Church has also taught me about the importance of mission outside the church. When we arrived, Truro had already developed a strong reputation for outreach, but we were able to see it grow enormously. The Land Center was an idea that we just began to pull together. It's a daytime shelter, daytime drop-in shelter for the homeless and disenfranchised in our immediate community. It was one of our very first initiatives. At first, it operated over a pawn shop on Lee Highway. And there were doubters inside and outside the church who refused to believe that there was any need for a ministry to the homeless in Fairfax. Surely, there are no homeless or needy people in Fairfax, they said. But the Truro Vestry and Gary Johnson, director of outreach at the time, persisted. And you know the rest of the story. The Lamb Center is now a thriving ministry with dozens of churches sponsoring businesses. It's been there for nearly 30 years. Many, many lives have been transformed and given hope because of that ministry. It's got its own custom-designed two-story facility on Campbell Drive, ministers to the needs of thousands of people every year. It also ensures that the love of Christ and the power of the gospel it's made real to every person who goes through those doors, both those who are there to receive help 
and those who give help. Another ministry that started at Turo was Five Talents International, a micro-enterprise initiative for the poor throughout the Anglican Communion. It began in 1998 through a dinnertime conversation on the rectory porch. We lived at one Truro Lane. The previous rector, John, had lived in Gullow House, but we thought it was a bit too fancy for us, and so we moved over one uh, and lived down the way there. We had dinner with Simon Chowanga, a bishop of the Diocese of Ampapua in Tanzania. He had come to visit his wife, Gladys, who was a student at Virginia Seminary. We invited a number of Truro leaders to meet with him. I think some are here today. As he shared the desperate plight of his diocese, he, des he described the agony he felt knowing that clergy in his diocese were unable to feed their children and watching them die of starvation. As we sat there, we were just overwhelmed. We thought, how dare we call ourselves an Anglican communion family when members of our family are suffering like that. We can't allow it to continue. We need to do something. So we prayed and God guided us through wonderful people like Diane Nippers to begin to think through a way to make a difference. And Five Talents was born. Started with a very simple idea, basically empowering the poor, usually women. Frankly, they were more motivated to get on with things, uh, to give them encouragement, training, teaching, a small loan, and they began to grow their own, their own jobs, their own businesses. Now, more than 23 years later, it has worked in 21 countries, giving business skills, training, spiritual formation, access to saving and loan associations, community banks, that have provided over half a million loans, primarily to women, as I said, who then start their own micro-enterprises. Five Talents, through these businesses supported by these loans, is now, we estimate, has given jobs, opportunities, and indeed transformation to over one million beneficiaries. Just think about it. It started with an idea on the rectory porch. Now around the world, there's a million people whose lives have been changed. And I've met some of those people. And it's astonishing. Jim Oakes is with us today, and Jim has traveled with me sometimes and seen some of those folks. And we could spend the rest of the day telling you stories. I still remember one story of a woman in Tanzania. When we first met, she was desperately poor. Poorer than anything you can imagine. She had got one piece of fabric to wrap around her body to protect her modesty. One child. She'd been abused and rejected by her husband. Literally living under a tree. She had no shelter. And we gave her, through the loan group that was there, a small loan and encouragement to start serving tea to people who worked in the village. She, she did that, made a little bit of money in each one, paid the loan back. That gives, see, what we're doing, we're not giving handouts, we're giving hand-ups. It's a very different model. And so she then paid her loan back and decided to build a business up, set her cups of tea, went up to little bits of sandwiches, went up again and again. Now she is running a hotel. Now it's not five star, but it's a hotel. She dresses well. She's able to dress her children so they can go to school. It all started, you know, she told me, it's not so much the training loans, but you believed in me. You gave value to me because of that. Her life, the life of her children, and then beyond that, have all been transformed. It all started here. 
Something else that I learned during our years at Truro was the power of worship. When we arrived, Truro, church already had good worship. But it was somewhat subdued and segregated between contemporary praise on Friday nights and traditional hymnody on Sunday mornings. And together we learned that it was possible to bring all of this together and enjoy glorious, spirit-filled music in many different genres at any time and in any service. We even learned to sing gospel style. And we started when I first got here because the, we had a choir in New York of homeless men and women. And when they heard we were moving to Truro, they were a little disappointed, but they said, we're going to come and give you a send-off. So we rented a bus, and the whole homeless choir came to Truro Church. I can still picture them standing up here. They didn't have proper Anglican etiquette, so they climbed over the rail and stuff. <laughs> but they sang their hearts out, and the Truro congregation realized they had been in the presence of something powerful. We had encore after encore. And I remember Peter Lee was standing at the back with me, and he looked at me and said, I've never seen anything like this before. I felt like saying, you watch. Uh, but we did learn. Uh, later on, there was a young a woman called Candy who worked on the staff here, and Candy and Bill uh, led a Pentecostal church. And I said, Candy, would you ever consider bringing your whole church on Pentecost? Because they, they were Pentecostals. And I never forgot Bill. He showed up. He was wearing a, a white suit with red patent leather shoes and, and a bright red shirt. He made me look kind of tame. And, but they sang their hearts out. I never forgot one particular song. The deacon of the church, I didn't realize that deacons in different denominations, he stood in the pulpit and he shouted. It was kind of this shout and response. So what kind of church is this? Of course, the response was a sanctified church. I won't do it today, but I want you to make sure you got it straight. And then the, he shout, what kind of church? It's a sanctified, tongue-talking, foot-stomping, hand-clapping, Holy Ghost sanctified church. Amen? Amen. Mm. And we, thank you, Rachel, and we <laughs> discovered that we could sing gospel. We didn't always get it right, but we could sing. We finally got some instruction. I don't remember Dr. Horace Boyer came. Dr. Boyer was a curator of sacred music, spirituals, at the Smithsonian. I mean, no mean scholar. And for some reason, he agreed to come and spend six weeks with us here. Chat remembers, because he went to stay with your parents down at the house. He was an amazing guy. Uh, he had, I mean, first of all, just bright mind. I mean, he knew his stuff. But he also was delightfully engaging. And he agreed, something he'd never done before. He actually worked as my music director for six weeks. He'd never done it before or since. He said it's exhausting. Uh, you understand, Jamie. And anyway, he taught us how to sing gospel, how to learn that wonderful, rich tradition. And then one time, a man, you may have remember hearing a man called Clarence Thomas. He was part of the church at the time here in Virginia. Uh, and they just were overawed by Horace's knowledge of the spiritual tradition. And so Clarence asked if we could arrange a, a, a Horace Boyer concert for him and his friends. And we did. At the Supreme Court building itself. It was something else. We packed the place out. Not the courtroom, you know, where they sit on the highest, but there's a big conference room near it. And we filled it with the praise to Almighty God. And I had a kind of a sneaky thought. I thought, you know what? Some people think the Supreme Court took 
took the Bible out of the church and other schools, but we put the gospel back in the Supreme Court. And it was glorious. We had a great time. We also discovered that worship is not just about music, but there are all kinds of rich tapestry of arts that we can use to bring glory to God. I mean, Tro is a beautiful building in itself. But we also discovered there was some remarkable artistic talent within this congregation itself. And who can ever forget the Good Friday when we were blessed with a powerful depiction, 18 feet tall, 16 feet wide, of the painting of the crucified Christ by our own Ed Nippers, also known as Rachel's Sunday school teacher. Another wonderful memory for me is Walter Slaughter. Walter Slaughter was a remarkable artist. When his sight began to fail, he retrained himself to do sculpture. And he sculpted a, a, a bronze statue of the, of the resurrected Christ called Abba. And some of you may remember, we bring it down the aisle for Easter Day. My memory of Walter is quite different. He would sit somewhere around there. He had cancer in his, in his brain and his eye, and his strength was failing. But I can still picture him pulling himself pew by pew to come to kneel at the rail to receive communion. He refused to let me go to him. He said, no, I will come. And he dragged himself through. It wasn't, I think, the week later he died. So his art was not about just showing off. It was from his own heart. And I'm glad to see there's some Walter Slaughter sculptures back there. Now some of you say, yeah, this is very fine, memory lane, but what's this got to do with Advent? Well, let me tell you. Everything. See, the central message of Advent is really quite simple. It can be summarized in three points. First of all, Jesus is coming back. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Now, it's been a long time, I admit, since Jesus made this promise, but he is coming back and he won't be late. As Peter writes in his second letter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you hear that? It's not that he's reluctant to come, but he's anxious to see that everyone be given the opportunity to hear that gospel and to repent and to turn to him. That's why we come into that story. The second point is that we cannot possibly know when. And yet people still try to guess the date. It seems to be a parlor game for some folks. They just try to figure out, they get clues, they read Revelation, they add up numbers, they do all kinds of strange things. And in recent times, I've been fascinated by, and saddened by the number of Christian leaders who have somehow convinced themselves that the second coming of Jesus is somehow linked to the rise or fall of a particular presidential administration. That they imagine that Almighty God is waiting for his intervention because of one occupant or another in the White House. I mean, is that taking American exceptionalism a little too far? <laughs> we don't know. We cannot know when. Okay, you got two points? What's the first? I'm not just doing this rhetoric. I want to hear. What is the first? It's coming back. Second? We don't know. We can't know when. So, this is where my logic kicks in. What do we do? We must be ready at all times. Get ready. 
Be prepared. Jesus could come back today or tonight or perhaps next week. Our son John used to regularly pray for the Lord's return before exams were due. Uh, <laughs> it never quite worked that way. Um, but how are we to live knowing that Jesus could come back at any time? Again, the scriptures have already given us clear instruction. First of all, we are to do the work of the gospel. Second, we are to witness to the truth of the gospel. And three, we are to live in the power of the gospel. And that's what we tried to do during our 16 plus years at Truro. That's the theme of all of our stories. And just in case you're wondering, Angela and I have many more stories, and our kids are with us today, many of them, and they can tell you a few more. We saw the power of God at work in our lives while we served here. And not only were we blessed by the work of the Spirit of God, working through the people of God, but while we're here, we also are very conscious of how we were building on a foundation that had been established before we got here. Another story. In May of 1991, I attended the annual Diocese and Clergy, Virginia Diocese and Clergy Conference Retreat at Shrinemont in the Shenandoah Valley, a place that became an essential part of our own family life as we enjoyed the annual Truro Family Retreat that was held there. This was a clergy retreat, and I, I was found myself sitting across the table from a, an elderly priest who I didn't know. Uh, he appeared to be somewhat alone, so I introduced myself. And he told me his name, Raymond Davis. I said, the Raymond Davis of Truro Church? He said, yeah. I said, well, guess what? I'm the new rector. And uh, I'd love it. I'll be honored if you would come and be present with me at our, my institution. Well, he was a little reluctant. Uh, uh, we talked, we walked for quite a few hours. And after a long time, he said he would come. And I still have a photograph of Raymond and Joe Kitts. Joe had his arm around him, escorting him as an honored member of the, the clergy on that day. I've also, coming a bit closer in time, I've also been blessed with numerous interactions with John and Karen Howe and their family over the years. And I'm still enormously grateful for John's remarkable teaching and preaching gifts that built a secure foundation of biblical faith in this church and beyond. And I think I've heard that John is not too far away. He's down at Lake of the Woods and he's continued to work in gospel ministry. But I suspect some of you are saying, you know, this is all good. You've got a good memory. Was it always that easy? No, of course it wasn't. There were many challenges. We went through the whole agony of separating from the Episcopal Diocese. I mean, that was brutal at times. And some of our struggles were very painful and left scars in all of our lives. But friends, that is always the nature of gospel work. Look at Jesus. He was the kindest, most gracious, most giving and forgiving man the world has ever seen. And they crucified him. Why should we imagine that we are exempt from hardship? See, I always think when we become Christian, we have this kind of vision of a peaceful kingdom. You know, now we're Christians all as well. All the animals are smiling and everyone's happy. It was a great picture, but it's not true. See, we're battling the darkness and the darkness pushes back. We do, however, 
have to avoid seeing this in terms of the particular personalities involved. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, people, individuals, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, that's why we need the whole armor of God if we are to prevail. And when we take it on, then the gospel will always triumph. Amen? Amen. See, let me see a quick quiz. We are to do the work of the gospel. We are to witness to the truth of the gospel. And we are to live in the power of the gospel. Let me conclude, at least right now, because I think I'm going to talk a bit later, uh, with one more story. Christmas 1999. The Truro bell was ringing to let everyone know that we were about to begin worship. Walter Siraj was working at a gas station on North Street, and he heard it. Walter had been the only Christian member of the Northwest Frontier Provincial Assembly in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. A conflict had arisen. Death threats were made against Walter and his family and he was forced to escape. He finished up living in Northern Virginia with members of his extended family. Excited to find an Anglican church nearby, he brought his family to worship that night. And of course, they were immediately invited by Angela back to the rectory for a meal. Christmas parties, Christmas Eve at our house was always kind of wild. And so began their Truro connection. They've had many battles since then. Walter's wife, Angela, died. Their family has struggled. But through it all, they have never failed to give glory to God for his faithfulness. And the power of the gospel lived out that they experience here at Truro Church. May that always be so until God returns. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I feel so blessed just looking upon this congregation right now. So many stories, so many lives. I thank you, Lord, for Truro Church, for its faithfulness through the years. And Lord, we look forward to what you will do in the future. I pray, Lord, you give us all the courage to live the truth of the gospel and to see lives transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory.